Jesus is a master illustrator, master teacher. And this sermon, as I argue, is the best sermon ever preached. You're listening to the sermon series, Matthew, the Gospel of the Kingdom, preached at King's Cross Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thekingscrosschurch.com. Our sovereign Lord, our gracious King, this morning, we approach your throne of grace with confidence, not arrogance, not hubris, not vanity, not pride, but certainly with confidence because of the finished work of your beloved Son. Father, we come this morning eager, anticipating to receive from you. As the disciples would admit, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. And as we open up this text to the best sermon, the greatest sermon ever preached, Lord, we ask that you would refresh us, not only in each other's company, but Lord, as we fellowship with you with the Spirit of God. So we ask that you would teach us and instruct us, correct us, rebuke, and train us in righteousness so that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Lord, we know that uh, our obedience is really not ultimately for us, but Lord, to bring you glory and to benefit others. So Lord, may we strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We ask, Lord, that you would enable us this morning to see your glory and to bring you glory. And we ask this in Christ's name and for his sake alone. Amen. Many kingdoms have left their mark. Known for one thing or another, we can look back in time and see what they emphasized, what they prioritized, what they treasured and what they worshiped. For the Greek empire, it was philosophy, it was wisdom, of course it was art. For the Roman empire, Among other things, it was power, it was peace, it was prosperity. If we were to go to wicked kingdoms, so to speak, we could look at Hitler's Germany, an attempt for a pure race of perfection and prejudice. And even though America is not a kingdom per se, we certainly have a mantra of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But what would the mark of the kingdom of heaven be? What would set us apart as citizens of the kingdom of heaven? Well, it's probably opposite of what you'd first expect. It's most likely a paradox or absolutely upstream compared to the things of this world. Last week, Jeff White showed us all that took place prior to and at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. And we saw last week in chapter four that Jesus immediately began his ministry of healing, but His ministry of teaching particularly was on the kingdom of heaven. He proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. And we saw last week uh, all that we miss really in Matthew that is filled in in John's gospel. We, We saw last week the arrest of John the Baptist. We saw the places where Jesus was traveling to back and forth and how he ended up in Galilee of the Gentiles. The first disciples were called. And then we saw last week the ministry that Jesus provided to those who are suffering from various infirmities. And this morning, we get right into chapter five. And uh, because of time, I wanna get right into the text and keep the intro short. So if you're taking note this morning, we're gonna see see three overall things as we begin uh, looking, studying one of Jesus's sermons, but I would argue is, of course, the greatest sermon ever preached. 
And it's a little bit odd that we're doing multiple sermons on a sermon. Uh, so we have to track that way. And to set this up, I don't just want to breeze right into the text. We'll get to the text. But I want to take some time to give an overall understanding of the teaching ministry of Jesus at large. And so we're going to spend just a moment gaining an understanding of why this was an important aspect of his ministry as the Messiah King. And that will be more of a 30,000 foot view of verses 1 and 2. And then secondly, we're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount. So we'll zoom in a little bit closer, maybe get a 10,000 foot view, a bird's eye view of this particular sermon or set of teachings of Jesus in Matthew 5 through 7. And we'll learn the importance of it. We'll learn the outline of it and how to interpret it. Then we'll look finally at the actual text we want to cover this morning, uh, at least verses 3 through 10, the Beatitudes uh, and Uh, Many people call this the preamble, if you would, to the Sermon on the Mount. And it's my prayer today that as we study these verses and these truths together, that we gain more of a glimpse of the paradox, which is the kingdom of heaven. The qualities that the world around us most often overlooks are the very things that embody what it means to be a citizen of heaven. Are we distinct and different from this world? Yes and amen. And we'll see why, not just because... We gather on Sunday mornings and all of our neighbors are looking out the window. Who are those people leaving so early in the morning? Why aren't they sleeping in? No, there's something far different from us. We'll see the significance of Christ's kingdom and those who are his citizens. And my prayer is that as we do, we, and as we study this entire sermon over the next several months, that we gain more of the blessing and favor of the Lord as we hear his words and we heed his words. Amen? Well, let's begin with a 30,000-foot perspective of Jesus's teaching ministry in general. Last week, we saw Jesus near the end of Matthew chapter 4. Remember, he's calling his first disciples, and he's then planting his feet in Galilee of the Gentiles. We saw his ministry of healing the sick. He's healing the disease, the demon-possessed, and all of this demonstrates his power over creation. We know since the curse and the fall are not the norm of God's order, the despair and the disease are the interruption. And so as the Messiah King comes to establish his ministry, he's really ultimately fulfilling and renewing what was lost by mankind in the garden. But he didn't just come to heal the sick. He didn't just come to cleanse the leper. He didn't just come to restore the sight of the blind or strengthen the paralytic. And neither did he merely come, and I don't even like to use the word merely, uh, merely come to die on the cross as our propitiation. I don't like the word merely because that's enough. But if you notice with me, Jesus had three years of very intentional ministry. He didn't go directly to the cross as he shows himself on the scene. We go from baptism, uh, Matthew chapter 3, to Calvary. But why the three-year ministry? Well, a major aspect of the incarnation was that God in Christ came to teach. He came to exegete the Father, to demonstrate Yahweh's character in the flesh, but also to provide counsel regarding his kingdom. In the introductory sermon for Matthew's gospel, back uh, several weeks back, uh, we learned that there are five main discourses or teaching sections in the gospel of Matthew. And what we come to this morning is the first of those five. And so look back with me at chapter 4, verse 25. 
it explains here that, quote, great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So if we're to track here, Galilee's to the north. The Decapolis area is a, a set of 10 towns to the east. We have Jerusalem, the most populous city. We have Judea to the south. And then we have beyond the Jordan to the southeast. So this essentially means in one verse, Matthew's iterating everyone. Basically, people from everywhere were following Jesus. And so I draw your attention to verse 1 of our text. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And verse 2 says, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them. He taught them. Jesus sees the crowds on multiple occasions. He has compassion on the crowds because they're like sheep without a shepherd. They're unguided. They don't know anything. They need the counsel and the guidance and the leading of the good shepherd. They're aimless and blind and untaught. Now, I think it's fascinating that around 45, 45 times in the New Testament, Jesus is called teacher. The Aramaic title rabbi is used 14 times in our New Testament. Now, even though Jesus wasn't formally trained from what we understand, as a rabbi, Jesus taught. He was known as a teacher. He taught in synagogues. We saw in chapter 4, verse 23, uh, last week, it says, he went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues. Uh, this was a place of assembly where Jews would gather each week and come together for not only instruction, but also uh, to worship Yahweh. And these ultimately were organized during the time of the Babylonian captivity we close the Old Testament, we don't really see synagogues, and then we open the New, and now we see they're everywhere. Uh, and these could only be started if you had at least 10 Jewish men in your city or town to establish them. And, and so when they came together in the synagogue, there'd be a reading from Scripture, there'd be an exposition from Scripture. Uh, often a traveling rabbi would come and would open the Scriptures that were uh, presented that day. And we see in Luke chapter 4, Jesus doing that, reading from the scroll in Isaiah 61. But essentially, Jesus, wherever he's at, in whatever place he's at, he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Not only in the synagogue, but we also see him in the countryside. We see him in houses. And at least on one occasion, Jesus even preached from a boat. And so here in, in our text, Jesus is not going up on a mountain, like some commentators believe, to get away from the crowds. Like verse one, seeing the crowds, he said, I got to get away from these people. No, I believe he's not having a side conversation with his disciples. My proof is that at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, verse one, we see his disciples came to him. So I think he sees the crowds. He calls his disciples closer to him. But turn with me very quickly to Matthew 7, verse 28. At the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, notice what it says. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. That's not the 12. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. See, for the crowds to be astonished at Jesus' teaching, they actually had to hear his teaching. This wasn't a side conversation for the disciples. It was for the disciples for sure. But the crowds were there listening in. It says in verse 29 there, that he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The scribes, the Pharisees, were meticulous in, in good things, in recognizing and, and, and recording and observing the scriptures to their credit. That's a good thing. 
but they didn't teach with authority to their shame. Instead, they would get up and, and they would quote Rabbi so-and-so. Well, Rabbi so-and-so has this perspective of this idea in the Mishnah, so we're going to go with that interpretation. Well, Rabbi, what's his name? He disagrees with Rabbi so-and-so, and so we don't really have the authority to say where we land, but we kind of lean with him, and if you don't agree with me, he's the one to blame. A lack of power, emasculated of power, sterilized sermons out of the fear of man. And here walks up the Messiah King, and his teaching is astonishing because Jesus will say, as we'll see, you've heard that it was said from the Old Testament, but I declare to you, but I say to you. Now, he's not teaching here in a synagogue, but on a hill in northern Israel, on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. We don't know the exact site, but historians believe that they do know where it is uh, located. And we, I think we have a picture or two of it. This would have been the backdrop of Jesus's Sermon on the Mount or Sermon on the Hill, if you want to be technical. We have another picture as well, I believe. Now, I'm excited because uh, we actually, I talked to Jeannie Hamilton this week. Um, we're actually going to be going to this exact location uh, on our Israel trip. So I'm excited. It's one more plug for that. Uh, we'd love for you to go. And um, I look forward to reading through the entire Sermon on the Mount in this location when we're there in March. Now, I'm so thankful that Jesus preaches this message at a, a lofty place, a place that's lifted up. Spurgeon said it well. He said, quote, a crypt or cavern would have been out of all character for a message which is to be published upon the housetops and preached to every creature under heaven, end quote. Now, we have a very similar uh, sermon that Jesus preached recorded in Luke chapter 6. So if you want to jot that down and read it later this week, Luke chapter 6 uh, seems to be uh, very, very similar to the Sermon on the Mount here in Matthew 5. But there in Luke, it says Jesus came down and stood at a level place. And so textual critics go so far as saying, hey, see, this proves there's errors in the Bible. Uh, but we dismiss that notion as silly. You see, the, the explanation is very simple. Either Matthew and Luke are referring to the exact same event, and Jesus preached on an elevated plane, as you could see from the pictures. Or Jesus is simply reiterating the same overall sermon content on more than one occasion. He went up on the hill and then he went down to the plane. And I lean towards that idea because as an itinerant preacher, Jesus was constantly going around preaching on the kingdom of heaven. And some of the parallels of content and thought exists both in Matthew chapter 5 and in Luke chapter 6. Very similar sermon preached in multiple places. I've spoken at various churches. Uh, friend, friends of mine have been invited to speak at conferences. And sometimes it's not the exact same sermon word for word. But often if a sermon is like, man, that was a really good sermon, praise the Lord. Um, then maybe we'll preach it, uh, preach it again. And so um, I believe that that's what's happening with the Sermon on the Mount. This, was, this is what he was ultimately getting across about the kingdom. Now, let's move a little bit closer. Let's zoom down from 30,000 to 10,000 feet and look more closely at uh, the Sermon on the Mount. What I want to do for a moment is look at the importance of it, the outline of it, and the interpretation of it. So first, the importance of the Sermon on the Mount. First of all, A.M. Hunter says this, quote, after 1,900 years, the Sermon on the Mount still haunts men. They may praise it, as Mahatma Gandhi did, or like Nietzsche, they may curse it. 
they cannot ignore it. Its words are winged words, quick and powerful to rebuke, to challenge, to inspire. He goes on to say, and though some turn from it in despair, it continues like some mighty magnetic mountain to attract to itself the greatest spirits of our race, many not Christians, so that if some worldwide vote were taken, there is little doubt that men would account it the most searching and powerful utterance we possess on what concerns the moral life, end quote. Now, sadly, only one in three Americans are familiar enough with this sermon to identify Jesus as the preacher of it. Uh, most Americans thought in a survey that this was preached by Billy Graham. And so we have some work to do. <laughs> the early church, though, cherished the Sermon on the Mount. The first century church prized Matthew 5 through 7 as one of the most important teachings in the scripture. In fact, many believe there's allusions to it in the book of Romans and Galatians, in both 1st and 2nd Corinthians, James and 1st Peter that all reference back to or allude to some of Jesus' teaching. In Christian writings from the close of the Council of Nicaea, so from the very first century all the way to 325, they quote Matthew 5 through 7 more frequently, more extensively than any other part of the Bible. And Matthew chapter 5 than any other chapter in all the scriptures. And, and that makes, if you would, the Sermon on the Mount the most referenced single teaching of our Lord and really the bedrock uh, doctrine or teaching foundation of the early church. In fact, even non-Christians, even Jewish, Hindu, Islamic readers have expressed admiration for Jesus because of his teaching in this sermon. The only people who don't like it very much are those who compare Jesus's words with Jesus's followers and they see a dissonance and they gnash their teeth at us. Uh, and that's unfortunate, of course. But what I want to do is I want to dive into the outline. If we were to read through this as an average pace speaker, it would take about 20 minutes to preach through the sermon word for word. About 2,500 words. Uh, the simplest way to break down the Sermon on the Mount is in five sections. So we'll put this on the screen for you. Uh, first, we have what I call the preamble or the intro, uh, Matthew 5, 1 through 16. And this includes the Beatitudes we're going to study today, uh, what it means to be salt and light. All of these describe the citizens of heaven. Uh, so that's the beginning. Then the main thrust of the sermon is the second idea, which is God's law in the heart of God's people. Jesus, we'll see, takes the Mosaic law in the Old Testament and he moves it from outward to inward. He speaks of murder. You've heard that it was said, do not murder. But I say to you, don't even become angry with your brother. Oh, well, I've never murdered, but I can definitely say I've been angry. Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Well, I'm good. I'm good on that one. But I say to you, do not even look lustfully at a woman. Okay, well, that's more of the heart. And so Jesus is going to show God's law in the heart of God's people. Thirdly, we see in this sermon that uh, what it means to glorify God through prayer, through fasting, and through our possessions. So we, we're going to see that nothing compares with God's kingdom. Not busyness, not the fear of man, not food or money. We'll also see in chapter 7, verses 1 through 12, how to navigate relationships with God and others. So how do we treat others? How do we approach God? 
And finally, we see the application of the whole sermon. We have this idea of will you be a true follower or, or will you not? We have two different gates. We have two different trees. We have two professors, one who professes him as Lord and the other who uh, he doesn't even know. Uh, we see two houses, one built on the sand and the other on the rock. And so this is a very simple outline. There have been other helpful outlines. John Stott uh, put this together. Uh, he said that you could outline it this way. We have a Christian's character, a Christian's influence, a Christian's righteousness, a Christian's piety, a Christian's ambition, a Christian's relationships, and a Christian's commitment. Throughout this teaching, what we're going to see is that Jesus is a master teacher. And what he uses is a variety of illustrations from a variety of different things. We're going to see that he uses illustrations from science. He talks about salt and light and moth and rust and birds and lilies and fruit trees and storms. As a science uh, nerd, I appreciate that about Jesus. Uh, he teaches using illustrations from architecture. We see gates, we see foundations. He's going to quote Old Testament law, Mosaic law. Uh, he gets into the, the depth of the courtroom and the family, I'm talking about relationships, the cultural norms in the day of going one mile with a Roman soldier. He even gets into tradition. Uh, he speaks about Corbin and gift giving. And, and then he even touches on people's common experience. He, he points out, hey, you know what the hypocrites do? They love to pray and fast and be seen. And everyone listening would say, yeah, yeah, we, we've seen that in Jerusalem. We, we know who you're talking about. And even uh, some extreme illustrations. Jesus talks about cutting your arm off or gouging out your eye, finding a speck in your brother's eye while you have a log protruding out of your own. Uh, Jesus is a master illustrator, master teacher. And this sermon, as I argue, is the best sermon ever preached. So there's some great things to understand about it. But the question is, how do we interpret it? How do we interpret the Sermon on the Mount? It depends on who you are. The Catholics would say, okay, this is how to attain the higher level of righteousness. This describes the monastery. And this is what we should aim for. And really, this is, this is next level Christianity. The Anabaptists, the Mennonites would say, what this means is radical passivism. So there is to be no engaging of, of any sort in the public square. You're to turn the other cheek and be struck, which means you're never to hold public office and you're never uh, to defend or go to war. Of course, classic liberalism says that this is simply a moral roadmap towards social progress. And the reformers, many of them said that when we read the Sermon on the Mount, it's intended to drive us to despair. And when we are driven to despair, what are we driven to? We're driven to the gospel. And so it, it seems as though people fall into one of two ditches. Either what Jesus teaches here is absolutely attainable by every human being, or it's attainable by no one. Well, here's my take on it. And it's not just my take. There's many others that uh, believe this. I believe the Sermon on the Mount simply provides Christ's ethical framework describing the citizens of his kingdom. Remember, it was a mountain where, where Moses received God's law in the Old Covenant. It's on a mountain where Jesus' disciples received the kingdom ethic, the law of God written on the heart of his new covenantal people. So I don't believe we should read Jesus' words 
and only think what he's saying is, okay, go do this and that, and you'll be a good Christian boy and girl. Uh, go do this and that, and you'll become a more righteous citizen of heaven, or this is how you become a citizen of heaven. Do these things, and that equals citizenship. It's more that he's saying, not imperative, but indicative. It's more that he's saying, here are the attributes. Here are the marks. These are the things that are simply done by citizens of heaven. Now, now to be sure, there's definitely commands here, but my point is none of this is possible unless we've first been born again, unless we are already citizens of heaven. Here's what John Stott said. He said, quote, there is but one solution. Make the tree good and its fruit becomes good. He says a new birth is essential. Only a belief in the necessity and possibility of a new birth can keep us from reading the Sermon on the Mount with either foolish optimism or hopeless despair. And so that should bring us encouragement. This is describing what citizens of heaven look like. Now, let's spend the remainder of our time diving into verses 3 through 10, what are called the Beatitudes. If you want to circle the word Beatitude, it's not in the text, but it's in the heading of our text. And the word simply means the blessings, the blessings. When Jesus says eight times, at least in our text this morning, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. Uh, Some have translated this word blessed as, oh, how happy. Let me just see a show of hands. How many of you have heard that before? Oh, how happy. Okay, both of you have heard that before. Great. <laughs> the, that's not the best way of conveying it because when we think of happiness, we're often thinking of some external thing that has come and provided us a smile. And that's not the idea here at all. It's not an external thing at all. It's blessedness. It's internal favor. It's, it's a joy that is absolutely independent of what is happening outside of us. And that's only possible if you are a citizen of heaven. It's only possible to experience blessedness from the Father if you truly are in the Son. Uh, Spurgeon said, note with delight that each of these is in the present tense, not the past tense, and certainly not only in the future tense. It doesn't say blessed shall be, blessed are. This is wonderful. So he begins with the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Please circle that phrase, poor in spirit. This can be translated as spiritual poverty. Spiritual poverty. Jesus is not here referring to poor in the sense of financial wealth. Uh, For some people, that would be a wonderful uh, set of uh, news for them. Oh, blessed are the poor. Okay, I'm poor. And poor financially. Uh, there may be an aspect to that, but that's not what he's referring to here. The one who's been indwelt with God's Holy Spirit immediately sees their great sin and their great need of salvation. They are poor in spirit. They need the Holy Spirit to make them rich spiritually. Uh, they, approaching a holy God, see themselves as the church in Laodicea was supposed to see their true condition. If you remember from Revelation 3.17, Jesus said, you think that you're rich and and, and have need of nothing, what you don't know is that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You see, we approach God in his holiness, and we should immediately confess that. I, I'm, I'm wretched. I'm naked. I need to be dressed in his righteousness. I'm absolutely pitiable. 
I'm poor. I have nothing to bring to my relationship with Christ. You see, we enter his kingdom not through wealth, not through prominence, not through power, not through prestige, thanks be to God, but by new birth. And so this means we are completely unqualified in Adam to receive anything worthy of redeeming ourselves. And this is humbling. And this is good. J.C. Ryle said, quote, humility is the very first letter in the alphabet of Christianity. We must begin low if we would build high, end quote. We know the song, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Calvin wrote, quote, he only who is reduced to nothing in himself and relies on the mercy of God, he is poor in spirit, end quote. So Jesus, from the very beginning, is laying out what it looks like to be a citizen. And he's admonishing us, like, this is what it looks like. You come as beggars. But we soon learn that we're blessed. Notice this phrase, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, that phrase is bookended, if you noticed, not only in verse 3, but also in verse 10. We'll look at verses 11 and 12 next week as we look down through verse 16. I'm going to put those together and look at what it looks like when citizens collide with the kingdoms of this world. Uh, but if you notice, we bookend it in verse 3 and in verse 10. Blessed are, blah, 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 for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, the poor in spirit are actually rich in what matters most. Jesus says, to them belongs his most glorious kingdom. Now, these begin to build on each other because look at verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Now, this also seems like a paradox, doesn't it? The blessed one is the one who mourns. And this word for mourn is the strongest word in the Greek language to describe an intense degree of loss and sorrow. This is not casual sorrow. This is not feeling bad that you got caught. This is not a temporary and uh, slightly half-hearted mourning, like, oh, I kind of feel bad for doing that. Uh. Um, and, and neither does Jesus mean mourning in general. And we may have quoted this to someone who has just recently lost a loved one, and we say, hey, blessed are those who mourn. We know you're mourning the loss of your loved one, and so, hey, uh, you shall be comforted. Uh, there's a general truth to that, but that's not the context that Jesus is referring to here. He's relating this mourning to the poverty of spirit. So it's one thing to be spiritually poor and admit it. But it's another step to grieve and mourn and wail at the awful condition of our corrupt soul. But this is what Paul describes as godly grief, which produces repentance. We know if Jesus wept over the sins of others, how much more should we weep over our own transgressions? We mourn, and those who mourn will be comforted. See, the promise remains that one day that blessing will come that he'll wipe away every tear from our eyes. We will weep no more for the sins that we committed. We'll weep no more for the sins that have been committed against us. We'll weep no more for lost opportunities. We'll weep no more for the sins of commission and omission. But he'll bring comfort. And he has brought comfort through the consolation of forgiveness of sins. And so this is a current, this is a present tense. Blessed are those who mourn, who grieve over their sin. They will receive comfort, not because they've shown so much penitence that their penance has now earned them righteousness. No, 
but because they'll be comforted by the comfort of God through the righteousness of his son. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin, they shall be comforted. Again, it builds. We get, we get to verse five. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Please circle the word meek. This is very much misunderstood. Often we think meekness is weakness. But that can't be true because the scriptures tell us that Jesus was meek. So instead, we would translate this word as gentle, or more specifically, it would be power under or submitted to God's control. I love that definition, power under God's control. One person said, quote, this is the regular word for an animal which has been domesticated, which has been trained to obey the word of command, which has learned to answer to the reins. It is the word for an animal which has learned to accept control, end quote. Did you guys know in uh, somewhere in, in East Lakewood Ranch, Bradenton area, uh, there is a farm uh, where they, t- they basically receive, um, uh, they say retired, which is pretty comical, retired bears. There's actually, there's a farm out East that, that accepts and, 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 and welcomes and cares for retired bears. They were bears that were in the movie industry and uh, they, they go there to retire. They've been trained to not attack children or anyone. Uh, and you can go up and essentially give them a true bear hug and they won't, will not rip you to shreds. Uh, they are a good example of meekness. They are power, incredible power, that is submitted. It's under control. Uh, meekness is not weakness. The one who is meek has a humble and gentle attitude to others because they have first understood a true estimate of themselves. And because of that, Jesus says, they will inherit the earth. Now you just expect the meek to be overlooked. The strong and the mighty will inherit the earth. That's the way of, of this world. And yet, we're not trampled by the proud. We're not driven out of the earth. No, the meek will inherit the very earth. The new heavens and the new earth are given to those who are like Christ. Jesus shows us the way of Christ is not like the way of this world. Paul said he had nothing, and yet he possessed everything. And so we sing it, take the world, but give me Jesus. And when we have Jesus, we end up inheriting the earth. In God's kingdom, there is no place for the proud or the unbroken. So blessed are the meek. Well, then verse six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, we're not going to get into righteousness. We've done a a ton of teaching on that in uh, the book of Romans. Uh, And so we know righteousness is a gift of God, but to hunger and thirst for righteousness is an acknowledgement that you lack something that you alone uh, can provide and something else must be given to you which will satisfy. And so Jesus here is expressing the blessed one is the one who desires the things of God, to be in right standing with God, uh, to not just have the relationship with God right, but relationship with man right. There's a social aspect to righteousness that, that uh, we, we come alongside those who uh, are overlooked. We help those who are far from God. And so uh, Jesus is expressing the blessed one is one who desires the things of God, who longs to please God. Just like some of us long for a meal to satisfy our hunger or for water to quench our thirst. John Stott said, quote, there is perhaps no greater secret of progress in Christian living than a healthy, hearty, spiritual appetite, end quote. 
And that's what we long to see. God's people longing for his righteousness, longing to not walk in the pattern of sin. And notice the blessing. The blessing, the promise, is that they shall be satisfied. Nothing in this world brings true satisfaction like being in right standing with the Lord, perfectly righteous now, and yet one day we will be pure just as he is pure. The desires of our heart fulfilled in Christ alone. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be satisfied. Well, he goes on, he says in verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This now begins to give uh, attention to those around us. And so the one who shows compassion and kindness to others can expect it back in return. That is a principle. Jesus even said with the same measure that we measure out uh, forgiveness and mercy to others, it will be given back to us. Uh, But the progression here is that once we see our emptiness before God and we mourn over our sin and we put on this attitude of meekness and we begin to thirst for the things of God, for his righteousness, not for the sinfulness of the flesh, well, now in right standing with God, we can begin to extend mercy to others. The world would say, look at my mercy. Look at my social justice. Look at all that I've done for the oppressed and the widow and the outcast. And therefore, because of that, now I should receive righteousness. No, that's the wrong order. First, it's the righteousness and then the mercy. And because we've been given mercy, we can now extend it to others. And notice, when we extend it to others, we receive it back. It's this wonderful cycle of mercy. Have you shown mercy to others in the same way you've expected mercy? Well, blessed are the merciful. He goes on in verse 8, and we looked at this earlier in our time of singing. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. If you want to circle the word pure, this idea is your heart is undivided. It's unalloyed. It's not mixed. It's not just pure ceremonially or outwardly, but unstained by evil inwardly. And, and here's the rub. Here's the, here's the contradiction. You ladies who went to the ladies' conference this past year, got into this a little bit with the theme of the heart. And so there's, on one hand, the heart is deceitfully wicked, Jeremiah 17, uh, and that's sadly the truth. But there's also this aspect of, as Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. There's an aspect of believers being pure-hearted. And so we really won't ultimately be pure in heart until we have the beatific vision where we have the amazing privilege of seeing the Lord. So we have a heart that's deceitfully wicked and, and impure in many ways, and yet Jesus promises, blessed are the pure in heart. And we'll see God. In a sense, we see God, but not with literal eyes. One day in glory, we will see him as he is and we'll behold the Lord. We shall see God. In the meantime, the pure in heart shall see God with eyes of faith, not literally, but we'll see, we'll have a glimpse of God, a vision of God. I I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones says here. He says, quote, all I have to say can be put like this. You are going to see God. Do you not agree that this is the biggest, the most momentous, the most tremendous thing that you can ever be told? Is it your supreme object, desire, and ambition to see God? He says, you and I, creatures of time as we appear to be, are going to see God and bask in his eternal glory forever and ever. Our one confidence is that he is working in us and preparing us for that. 
but let us also work and purify ourselves even as he is pure, end quote. Quote from 1 John. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Well, then he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You want to definitely underline the word peacemaker. It's the only time it's used in the New Testament. And we don't have a lot of data concerning its use here or its meaning. The question is, is this referring to large scale, like peacemaking and war, or small scale like quarreling? Which one is it? And the answer is yes. Yes, it's both. Notice though, Jesus does not say, blessed are the peacekeepers. Blessed are the peacemakers. This is not just avoiding conflict. Well, I don't want to get into it. I'll just be a peacemaker. I'll be a peacekeeper. No, it's bringing about reconciliation. It's bringing about order. It's overcoming evil with good. Going into situations where there is great conflict and saying we will work hard to bring about shalom, wholeness, favor of God. The peace God wants us to have is not an emotional state of oneness with someone we disagree with. No, it's true fellowship where nothing stands in the way. Nothing's between us. Do you have that in your marriage? Do you have that with other members here? When we strive to do everything we can to make peace with others, he says we will be called sons of God. We are identified. We are named with the children of God. We align with our heavenly father. We align with our elder brother who is the prince of peace. We love reconciliation and we love shalom. We're called sons of God, daughters of God. And finally, we come to verse 10, the final beatitude. And all these build upon themselves. We see the work that God does in us. We see the work that God does through us. We see the work that he's doing in the earth by his people, through his people. But then we come to verse 10 and we see that there is not going to be a welcome reception for the citizens of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You could say the word persecuted could be mistreated, mistreated, but note with me, it's, it's for righteousness sake. As David Gusick says, it's not for stupidity or fanaticism. It's for righteousness. Uh, so you can't cry persecution if you're just being a mean Christian. Okay. Uh, those who live set apart lives for God's glory, he says, you can expect to inherit the kingdom and you can expect to incur mistreatment by the world. Again, we'll unpack that next week as we continue verses 11 through 16. But the book ends of this, the poor in spirit and those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, both of these embody those who will receive the kingdom. And as we seek to apply these uh, these 10 verses, we find in these eight qualities that these are all attributes of every Christian. At least they should be. I mean, think about it. If someone names Christ, but they're the opposite of the Beatitudes, so they're full of themselves, they're, they're unmoved by sin, they're proud, they're unsubmitted, they're satisfied by the things of this world, they love this world, they're, they're cruel or severe to their spouse and to others. They're obscene or they're immodest in their thoughts and their speech and their attitudes. They're divisive or incendiary towards others. And they're loved and accepted by the world. Then we need to argue this morning, they are most, most likely not of Christ. Or they need to be called to repentance. And David Gusick says, quote, if you meet someone who claims to be a Christian but displays and desires none of these traits, you may rightly wonder about their salvation. 
because they do not have the character of kingdom citizens. But if they claim to have mastered these attributes, you may question their honesty, end quote. You see, this sermon that we're reading isn't designed to drive us to despair because it's impossible, but to showcase who we already are. We're regenerated citizens of heaven. So believer, take heart this morning. This world is not your home. Not only do these describe Christians, but these attributes describe Christ. I mean, think about how the Beatitudes describe or embody our Lord. Jesus was rich, yet for our sakes, he became poor. He emptied himself. Jesus wept and mourned, not over his own sin, but over the sins of others, even asking the Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. The eternal God was meek. The Almighty was submitted, was gentle and lowly. Christ would never be satisfied except to only do what pleased the Father and desiring his will alone. Christ showed mercy when judgment would have absolutely been appropriate. Christ alone was the only man truly pure in heart and the one alone who has seen God with eyes of flesh. Christ's death brought shalom to the world as he bore the ministry of reconciliation. And yes, Christ, like his followers, was persecuted to the point for him of death and even death on a cross. And it was all for the sake of his perfect righteousness. So this morning, as we look at the Beatitudes, we see not only Christians, but Christ, our Lord. As we close this morning, we're gonna turn our attention to the Lord's table in just a moment, and we're gonna receive the bread and the cup and hang on to those as they're distributed in just a moment. If you're not a believer, if this uh, set of attributes does not describe you in the secret place and you've not been baptized, we would encourage you to just abstain this morning uh, and we'd love to share the hope that can be yours in Christ, not in your good works, but in his finished work. But as we conclude this, this morning, a story is told about the prince, prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon. Um, I didn't know this, but one day, he had been suffering intense criticism, uh, and because of that, he went into a deep depression. Uh, those in pastoral ministry suffer criticism all the time, but this particularly landed hard, and he, he was just very much depressed. And one day, uh, his wife, wanting to bolster and encourage him, what she did is she wrote out the Beatitudes here in a very large script on an oversized sheet of paper, and she hung it above their bed. And so the idea was that the first thing that Charles Spurgeon saw every morning and the last thing that he read at night was our Messiah King's glorious promise of blessing for all who belong to him. And so may we this morning take heart as dear saints to know that you and I are truly blessed by the riches of his glorious grace. Amen? We're going to stay seated if you'd bow your heads with me, we're going to pray in just a moment. Uh, Ryan Tansky is going to come and uh, lead us in a time of communion. Ushers are going to come as we sing and distribute the elements. But bow your heads with me this morning. Father in heaven, we worship you. We thank you that we are truly blessed. We know that word is thrown around on social media with a hashtag. And, and yet the citizens of earth have no idea what it truly means to experience the internal favor of God apart from all external circumstances because we're in a right relationship with you. Lord, we pray this morning, if there are some today who are not poor in spirit, they haven't began with spiritual bankruptcy, 
admitting their need, confessing Christ, turning from their sin and turning to the Lord? Would you do that work of regeneration this morning? For us who are in Christ this morning, may we remember these truths and be strengthened by your grace to be pleasing to you. Lord, we thank you for the promises that are given to us in these verses. We ask, Lord, that you'd receive our worship as we come to the table now, thankful for the finished work of Christ on our behalf, knowing it's only his imputed and imparted righteousness that saves. We worship you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. King's Cross Church meets at 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. at the campus on Lena Road. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, don't hesitate to email us at info at thekingscrosschurch.com. God bless.